Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you again solo for another attempt at some opinion scholarship. We're going to talk about Buddha today. We're going to talk about Jesus today. Uh, can't wait to get into it. I had a, a good friend and friend of the show, Daniel Torden of the Onion Unlimited podcast, formerly of England, now of Australia, who uh, recommended a book for me called um, Jesus and Buddha. I have it somewhere, but not at, not at uh, arm's reach. But we're going to talk about it today. The book's called Jesus and Buddha, um, The Parallel Sayings. And it really is an exercise in comparative religion. It's very explicitly an exercise in comparing the teachings and story of Buddha to the teachings and story of Jesus. And it's really interesting. In fact, there's far more parallels than I ever imagined. Um, As interested as I've been in religion for years and studied some Buddhism, um, really not nearly enough. I knew the story and very... um, uh, kind of very high level um, of Buddha, never really got into the holy texts, and there are lots of them, uh, and they span different countries and languages, um, Indian Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, uh, Nepalese Buddhism, um, it just goes on and on. So it's it's complicated, more complicated than I guess I've been willing to put the effort in up till now, and so this was <clears throat> kind of a new topic for me, really, uh, and I really enjoyed it, and I think it goes along with what we've been doing recently. So last few weeks, we did uh, part two of Before the Bible, where we talked about Zoroastrianism and its impact on um, Judaism and Christianity, for that matter. Very, very little known stuff about a very ancient and important religion that in the West we know very little about. Um, and then we talked a, a little bit about creation stories and comparing um, some of these ancient Indo-European stories uh, that have reached even as far as far east into China, uh, the story of um, Pangu. And we related that to the Scandinavian story of Ymir and the um, Indian story of Prajapati, all of which uh, involve a primordial god whose body, whose literal body becomes the building blocks, the material for creating the cosmos, the material world. And so we've been doing a lot of comparative religion. And so I thought this really was going to go hand in hand with that. I figured I might as well bring this to you right away. Um, So in this vein, uh, we explore uh, today Marcus Borg, and Jack Cornfield. These are the, the authors and editors of this particular book, Comparing the Life and Teachings of Jesus and Buddha. A little about the authors. Marcus Borg is a New Testament scholar, PhD from Oxford, 
and a professor at, the, at Oregon State University. He's authored nine books on the subject of Jesus and, and Christianity. Um, so we have in Marcus uh, Borg a, uh, an expert in Christianity. The other author we have who wrote the foreword, uh, his name is Jack Cornfield. <laughs> I hadn't heard of Jack, um, but it rang a bell, and it's because Duncan Trussell, if you guys are uh, fans of the Joe Rogan podcast or of Duncan Trussell, he brought this uh, fella up on an episode with Duncan and Joe on Joe's podcast, and that's where I recognize the name. Jack Cornfield is a Buddhist monk. Uh, he's also a PhD um, clinical psychologist, which I find very interesting. Um, and he's basically famous for popularizing Buddhism in the West. So what he's tried to do is bridge the gap that I mentioned earlier about languages and distance from East to West and make Buddhism accessible to Western people. He's also written many books on uh, the teachings of Buddhism. So we have Marcus Borg, the PhD scholar of Christianity, and we have Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist monk. And so together we have a qualified team, you, you might say, um, to talk about comparing Jesus and Buddha. So before we jump in, um, I want to make it clear that the authors don't believe that there was any historical connection between Jesus and the teachings of Buddha. So not from Jesus' so-called travels to India during his lost years, Right, So we've talked about that before. There's a character that appears in some Buddhist tradition by the name of Isa, and um, he was somebody who traveled from uh, the West to, uh, to India and learned from uh, Hindu and Buddhist scholars. And many people believe that this mysterious figure um, was Jesus, and, and they, they use this gap in Jesus, in the narrative of Jesus' life from the Gospels. So we hear about Jesus being born, um, and then we don't hear really hear about him again until uh, he starts his ministry in his 30s. So it's like, what happened in the lost years? Well, some people think that he Jesus may maybe traveled to India and was exposed to Buddhism. Um, I think that's a fascinating idea. I, I I hope like I like I like I hope aliens are real. I hope that is a real story, but I just don't have any any real evidence for it. So they don't believe that. They also don't believe that there was cultural exposure carried on the trade routes um, with the East. So, you know, the, the Silk Road and the trade routes and so forth, um, they passed right through um, Palestine, you know, right through to the Mediterranean. And so could there have been some uh, Buddhism that, that made its way through those routes all the way to first century uh, Palestine, Israel? I don't know. But the authors don't really think that's a very likely scenario. So... They've sort of written off, not you know entirely, but they sort of written off either of these ideas as explaining the parallels that we're going to see today. So take it from Marcus Borg and Jack Cornfield. So as, as fanciful and intriguing as these may seem, there's little evidence of either of these taking place. Instead, the authors favor the idea that human beings share a capacity for religious experience and that this experience can be seen mirrored in the figures of Jesus and Buddha and in their teachings. The parallels in their teaching is therefore not surprising, but as you will shortly see, the overlap between them does seem at times to go beyond this. Why that might be, I'll leave up to you to decide. 
So I want to give you some context like I like to do. While we're talking about Jesus and Buddha, we're basically talking about two figures. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, first, first century AD carpenter from Israel-Palestine, born somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 BC. This is what we believe. And uh, the sources that we're, this book is going to pull from are basically exclusively the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've talked about that before. The Gospels were very likely written between 70 and 110 AD. So this is the time period we're dealing with when we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Now the Buddha, of course, the Buddha, that word is something like the word Christ. Um, The word Christ, I think it means the anointed one. Um, Buddha sort of means the enlightened one. Um, So Buddha was not, of course, the proper name. Um, Siddhartha Gautama, um, I'm probably mispronouncing that, was the name of the historical Buddha. He lived in the mid-500s BC, and he was a prince. So you have some contrast between Jesus, the first century carpenter, and Siddhartha, the, you know, coming from the mid-500s BC, and he's a, he's a royal person, I think, from Nepal. Um, so very different people, very different times. They're separated by, you know, 500 years or more. Um, and the sources that we're using when we're going to go through these parallels from Buddhism are, and again, I've, I've, I'll always say this when I'm using uh, foreign uh, words, I will probably mispronounce the crap out of these, but um, the books, in case you want to look them up, are the Dhammapada, which are a compilation of the sayings of Buddha, and then various collections of books called um, Nikaya, and there are several of them. I think the word Nikaya just means like canon or collection, but there are various collections of these Buddhist holy books called Nikaya. And then lastly, there's a book called the um, uh, Kandahaka. So these are the three primary sources that we're going to get these uh, quotes from on the Buddhist side. We're comparing the Gospels to the Dhammapada, the Nikaya, and the Kandahaka. I'm going to try to bounce back and forth a little bit between um, parallel sayings and parallel stories because they're all kind of all mixed in in the book and I think it makes sense to do that, do it this way. But before I do, I would just want to kind of read some excerpts from the introduction to this book because what it does is it it gives a it gives Marcus Borg's like very high level summary of the parallels between the lives of Jesus and Buddha. And I think it reads well, so let me just read this to you. It goes like this. The correspondences in their life stories begin even before they are born. In the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel proclaims that Mary will bear a child who will be called the Son of the Most High. Buddha's birth is attended by devas who say to Queen Maya, Rejoice, a mighty son has been born to you. Okay, so the devas, if you remember, these are the gods. And so where the angels appear to Mary and say, you know, proclaiming she's going to have a son, he's going to be the most high, um, Buddha's mother, uh, Maya, Queen Maya, has a very similar story where the gods come to her and say, rejoice, a mighty son has been born to you. And so even as these stories open, you see this very interesting parallel where supernatural creatures, divine creatures are heralding the coming of of this great holy person. Continues, both were born of chaste women while the mother is on a journey, and neither birth occurs in a house. 
Heralds are present on both occasions. Indian sages pay homage to Buddha, and the wise men herald Jesus' coming. Okay, so you have this idea of both Mary and Queen Maya being virgins when they're giving birth to these holy children. They're both on a journey um, when this occurs, when the birth occurs, and neither birth occurs in a house. I don't know the specifics of Buddha's birth, but of course, Jesus was born in a manger. And then they've got these people, these holy people, these important people who come to pay homage to this to this important child that's been born. Um, Indian sages for the Buddha and the wise men from the East, the Zoroastrian priests for Jesus. And it goes on. Neither began his spiritual quest until he was about 30 years old, but both soon encountered trouble with the ruling aristocracy. Buddha flouted social convention by consorting with thieves and murderers. Jesus was fiercely attacked for eating with sinners and whores. So you can see some interesting parallels there. Guatama helped to reform Brahminical ritual, uh, rituals harmful to people and animals. Jesus attacked many temple traditions. I think this is interesting too because you have, you have Buddha and Jesus who who neither intended a, a, to start a religion separate from the one they were born into. Right, That wasn't the case for either of them. But the Buddha sought to reform the, um, the, the rituals that the Brahmins carried out, the Hindu rituals that the Brahmins carried out that he believed to be harmful to people and to animals, things like animal sacrifice as an example. And Jesus did the same thing. If you remember from the stories, um, the, the, he he threw threw over the money changing tables uh, in the in the temple complex. Um, he argued with the rabbis. Um, he he also represents what Christians call sort of the final sacrifice. So there's no need for animal sacrifice any longer because Jesus, right, the incarnation of God, sacrificed Himself. And the value of that sacrifice is greater than any number of animal sacrifices could ever be in atoning for sin. So both characters challenged the religions that they were born into, Hinduism and Judaism. Um, they pointed to things that they, that they thought were wrong. And, uh, and again, attempting to reform, uh, at least by example. And the consequence of both were... Elimination of animal sacrifice, which is an interesting parallel. It's also interesting that, you know, beyond the express intention of either the Buddha or Jesus, the Buddha considered himself to be a Hindu, right? That Jesus considered himself to be a Jew, and yet both, the lives of both resulted in new religions being formed. So it goes on, it says, both teachers invoked the golden rule of treating others as you want them to treat you. Many of Jesus' most famous sayings, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, and the idea that one who lives by the sword will die by it, are mirrored in the words of the Buddha. And the moral teachings of Buddha has a remarkable resemblance to the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Interesting. He goes on, he says, Each is tempted by the devil while fasting during a lengthy retreat near a river. The devil challenges each of them to use his supernatural powers for worldly ends. Each refuses. In one Buddhist text, the devil promises to make Gautama a ruler of the world, just as he does with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. 
The devils, too, are alike. They are lords of death who control an earthly domain and attempt to lure everyone into their web. Then it says, after defeating the devil, Jesus and Buddha give up their seclusion. Now, I want to say, while we're talking about the devils being alike, the devil character that's introduced in the story of Buddha is called Mara. And Mara is a deva, so he's a supernatural being, but not a good one, necessarily. He's one that's sort of contrary to the to the best interests of mankind. You might call that, that a devil rather than a god, but in ancient Hinduism, there's really kind of a shady line there. So he was the deva that was the embodiment of greed, hate, delusion, and death. And he's tempting Buddha, trying to prevent him from reaching enlightenment. It's very much like what the devil does to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So keep that in mind when we hear Mara early, uh, later in the, in, the, in the episode. That's the Buddhist devil, if you will. Okay, it says, Jesus worked with loaves and fishes, just as Buddha fed 500 people with a few small cakes. Both were transfigured by dazzling light in front of their followers, and both grew angry when people demanded miracles to bolster their faith. So, miracles are attributed to both Jesus and Buddha, and, and that doesn't really surprise me, given the characters uh, and, and, and the importance of those historical characters um, and, and their kind of holy nature. But what is interesting to me is the parallels in the miracles themselves. You know, Jesus has a few fish and loaves of bread, and he's got all these people out to, out, you know, to hear him preach, and uh, he manages through a miracle to feed hundreds and hundreds of people with just a few loaves and fishes. And Buddha has an almost identical story, but instead of loaves and fishes, it's cakes. And this transfiguring that happens... Um, that, that's paralleled in both stories, and as we're going to see in a bit, walking on water and, and things like that also parallels, which I find to be very interesting. I don't really know how to explain that. It's one thing to say that both religious holy people um, were capable of miracles. It's another to say that those miracles were identical. I mean, I just don't know what to say about that. I'll go on here. He says, Each one taught that he would die. His words would remain, helping to guide his followers until the time of what Jesus called the renewal of all things, and Buddha referred to as a time when this world contracts. Oh, I think that's interesting. So I didn't really know that there is a parallel in Buddhism to an end of days or a, a, or a, a new Jerusalem, a second coming, a rebirth of the cosmos, a death and destruction and rebirth of the cosmos that we see in uh, the book of Revelation. I, I had no idea that there was even a concept similar to this in Buddhism, and yet there you have it, a time when this world contracts. And that, that's what Buddha is, is foretelling. And it goes on to say, both teachers instructed their followers to abandon thoughts of personal pleasure and security. So remember, um, Jesus told his followers to, to sell their things, give to the poor, to you know, dr drop their nets and follow him, that sort of thing. So it's not, it's not an issue of um, uh, personal security, of, of you know, f full stomachs. You know, it's like those things are of no importance for those people who follow the, the holy path. And you see the same in Buddhism. Both teachers spoke in parables, right? A kind of code within the group that others would not easily understand. 
and ultimately each organized his disciples and sent them out into the world to carry his message after he was gone. And lastly, even in death, they seem to be fulfilling mirror image destinies, as the passage of each is marked by terrible thunder and a great earthquake. Isn't that interesting? Upon the death of Jesus and of Buddha, the end of their mortal lives, there's thunder and earthquakes. I just, I don't know how to explain that level of parallel. I find it fascinating. All right, so this brings me to the meat here. We're going to talk about uh, parallel passages, parallel scriptures, um, and I'm going to start with a few. Uh, these are going to be tales. These are going to be more of the stories, and then we're going to get into the teachings, and then back into the tales. So let me just open it up like this. I'm going to start with the Bible, and then I'm going to, I'm going to move to the Buddhist text, and then I'll just continue that cadence as we go through. So here we go from the Bible. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And now the Buddhist version. When the bodhisattvas had descended into his mother's womb, she was inaccessible to any man. Okay, so a bodhisattva is a, is a word that's often used for um, a, a saint. You might, you might call it a saint um, as a parallel to Christianity, but it is an enlightened being, somebody who is or will become a Buddha. Now, now Gautama Buddha is not the only Buddha, and that's just, this is important in, Bud in Buddhism. But what happens in this Buddhist text is when the Buddha descends from heaven into its mother's womb, so you have this sort of divine conception happening, exactly like you see in the Bible. She was inaccessible to any man. What does that mean? She was a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Isn't that interesting? All right, here's the next one from the Bible. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. And the Buddhist version. For what reasons are these signs revealed? Is it that a Buddha has emerged in the world? Never before have we seen such signs. We must trace them together, crossing a myriad of lands, seeking the glow and investigating it together. So in both cases, you have a glow, you have a star guiding people, a heavenly signs guiding people to the child that is born. A child who is born king of the Jews. Has a Buddha emerged in the world? You see the parallels here. And we'll take a break from sayings and we'll, we'll move into the teaching. So I want to get into, it's one thing to talk about the stories of how they were born. You know, they're miraculously born of virgins, all that sort of thing. We see those sorts of stories in other religious um, tales and other myths from, from the ancient world. So let's get down to brass tacks. What about the human beings, Jesus and Buddha? What was their religious reform? What were they teaching exactly? So let's do a little back and forth here. From the Bible, Jesus says, Do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now I'm going to add this because I think it's relevant. He also says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And let's hear the Buddhist version. Buddha said, Consider others as yourself. Now I want to focus on this for just a second. Because I don't think this is the intention of the author here, but I'm going to insert this because I think it's true and I think it's important. When Jesus says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, 
And when he says love your neighbor as yourself, what does he mean, do you think? Is it some sort of moral lesson? You know, regulating your behavior in the hopes that other people will regulate their behavior thusly? I mean, that's an optimistic perspective to me because there's because there's too many assholes in the world. You know them. I know them. We all know them. People who break the rules and don't give a shit. You know, people who are only out for themselves. People who are incapable of loving their neighbor as themselves. So I don't think Jesus is necessarily expecting that this will be a reality. Maybe that it's even in human nature to be a, a permanent reality. And yet he still instructs you to love your neighbor as yourself. And the Buddha says, consider others as yourself. I think that might be a little bit more to the point here. If you consider others as yourself, what does that mean? That means you see them identically to yourself. They have different, different faces and names and histories and preferences and all that. But fundamentally, another human being is the same thing that you are. And we have this in the Bible too when we see that we're made in the image of God and we understand ourselves to be something divine fundamentally. You, you might say that your soul, your spirit, is that divine part of you, and some people are more comfortable with that. I'd go a step further, really, but neither here nor there. To love your neighbor as yourself or to consider others as yourself is to recognize that other people are the same thing that you are. And there's something about that is divine. You owe love and respect to every creature in the world because what those creatures are fundamentally is exactly the same thing that you are, something divine. I would say God itself. Again, I don't think the authors intended that interpretation, but when you read Buddha's version, not just love your neighbor as yourself, but consider others as yourself. Learn to see others as yourself. I think there's something mystical about that. All right, back to the Bible. Jesus says, If anyone strikes you on the cheek... Offer the other also. And Buddha says, If anyone should give you a blow, you should abandon any desire and utter no evil words. Very similar, right? And again, the reason for this, I think, goes right back to the first quote. If somebody strikes you on the cheek, why should you offer the other? Why should you utter no evil words to them? Because to harm them back is the same evil that was done to you. To harm them back is to harm yourself. If you see your neighbor as yourself, why would you harm them back? Two wrongs don't make a right, and that's the point. Because if they hit you, that's wrong. If you hit them back, it's as though you've done exactly what they've done. You've hit yourself. It's a matter of identifying with the other person or recognizing this shared identity. You know, you might feel the push for retaliation. You might feel the desire um, for justice. But you, when you recognize the other as yourself, you know there is no justice in retaliation. It's just more evil. It's just more wrong. And it's a wrong that you're, that you're doing to yourself, just like that person did to you. When he hit you on the cheek, he did a wrong to himself or herself. And we can continue in this vein. Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. The Buddha says, overcome anger by love. 
Overcome evil by good. Right? Two wrongs don't make a right. You don't overcome evil by evil. That's, that's what Jesus said. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Overcome anger by love and evil by good. All right, Jesus says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. How about the Buddha who says, Abstain from killing and from taking what is not given. Abstain from unchastity and from speaking falsely. I mean, the Ten Commandments repeated by Jesus and Buddha, almost word for word. You shall not murder, abstain from killing. You shall not steal. Abstain from taking what is not given. You shall not commit adultery. Abstain from unchastity. You shall not bear false witness. Abstain from speaking falsely. Word for word. And there's more. A lot more. Jesus said, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You guys know that story, right? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. How about Buddha? He says, Do not look at the faults of others or what others have done or not done. Observe what you yourself have done. So it, again, it's it's putting the onus back on you. It's something like, again, like a, uh, a, a reinforcement of this, um, of this impulse to see yourself in the other. Why would you cast that first stone when you yourself are just as bad, just as sinful? And it reminds me of another quote, which I believe is a Jesus quote, but don't 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 uh, don't hold me to it. Uh, something about um, something about not taking the moat out of your uh, out of a stranger's eye until you remove the log from your own. Something like that. You guys know the quote. And let's go on. Jesus says, "Your Father in heaven makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good." and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Right? Your Father in heaven makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and rain on the, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, and this is the way of the world. And, and, and listen to Buddha. He says, The great clouds rain down on all. The light of the sun and the moon illuminates the whole world, both whom both him who does well and him who does ill. I mean, how much more closely could those two statements be? That is the way of the world. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong, right? Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. And that is the way of things. How about this? Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile but the things that come out are what defile. So what is he talking about? You remember the context here. He says, um, we're talking about the, the, the Jewish law and things about um, not being able to work on the Sabbath and, and, and all these sorts of things. And one of the things that, uh, that the Jews are not allowed to do are eat certain types of food, right? They're not allowed to eat shellfish. They're not allowed to eat um, animals with uh, cloven hooves like, like, um, like pigs and so forth. 
And this is what he's talking about. Jesus, this is one of the ways he pushed back against, against the Orthodox you know, Ju- Judaism. He said, there is nothing outside of a person that when you bring it in, like if you eat a pig, that will defile you. It's only the things that come out of you that will defile you. Right? People will be known by their fruits. That's another biblical understanding of this. And what does Buddha have to say on the matter? He says, stealing, deceiving, adultery. This is defilement, not the eating of meat. I mean, it's just baffling to me how, how these parallels are so intensely connected. I mean, I can't imagine... I know that, that in the Buddhist tradition, um, killing is, is, is a very uh, uh, strong faux pas. So, uh, you know, they're, they're going to avoid killing even insects and things like that if they can help it. All life is considered to be sacred and holy, and, and I agree with that. So in the context of not eating meat, in this case, um, I think that uh, it, it's not the same um, faux pas as you see in Judaism, where it's specifically certain types of meat. In this case, it's just not eating meat at all, but neither here nor there. Buddha says it's the things that come out of you that defile you, not the things that go in. Specific things, stealing, deceiving, adultery. How about this one? Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. And Buddha says, let us live happily, possessing nothing. So Buddhists will say that attachment is a fundamental human problem. Attachment is something that keeps you from spiritual enlightenment. It's something that, that it, it connects you to the earth. It prevents you spiritually from being able to come out and beyond it. Right? It's, it's an obstacle to enlightenment. So be happy and possess nothing. You know, don't attach yourself to things that will perish. Don't attach yourself to people. Don't attach yourself even to your own ego. So possess nothing. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And for the same reasons, right? He also said, if you remember in the Bible, that it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would that be? Because he's so attached to things that he's unable to see any of those spiritual truths. He can't see beyond the material things. Amazing. Back to Jesus. He says, Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. In the Buddhist version, with the relinquishing of egotism, the enlightened one is liberated through not clinging. So again, this is that attachment idea. Not You don't want to cling to things. You don't want to be attached to things if you can help it because those are things that will hold you back. You're going to be focusing your efforts and attention and value on things that are perishable and don't really matter. But this is an interesting spin because what, what Buddha is saying not to cling to is your own ego. And that's a very different challenge. People don't often think about their ego as a possession or as something external to them. But that is a deep religious truth. Your ego, that's the thing that you associate with your face, with your name, with the sound of your voice, with your values, with your memories, with the things you own. That thing is external to you. 
And what that means is that there's something deeper, that what you are is something deeper than all of those things. All of those things you attach to, and you say, ah, yes, that's what I am. You know, I'm a scientist. I'm a punk rocker. You know, whatever it is. No, you're not. Whatever you are is deeper than that. You might be attached to those things. You might have those things. But that ego that you're talking about, this picture you've painted of yourself, that's not what you are. Don't cling to those things. Because the more you cling to those things, the less you're ever going to, to, to discover that there is something underneath them. There is something that is you, really you, underneath all of that. Now, doesn't that enlighten or shine a light on what Jesus said a little bit in a little bit of a different way? Those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. So the life that you're losing, you might think about that as your ego. The life that you're that you're losing is something getting in the way. How about this one? Jesus says. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the Buddha says, People compelled by craving crawl like snared rabbits. So this is an interesting one to me. It's again associated with, with this idea of attachment or, or to, to detach from those things that you're otherwise attaching yourself to. Everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Now, a, a great example of this, I mean... I mean Drug addiction comes to mind. Uh, any kind of addiction, really. Sex addiction, drug addiction, um, you know, the uh, uh, gluttony, the addiction to food, these sorts of things. You know, we the the Catholics have a great have a great list of these seven deadly sins, um, and they all come to mind. Is that if you are committing those sins, you know, maybe you love food and you're a big fat big fat guy and that's where you get all your pleasure from and that's where you get your escape from the troubles of the world and a big old piece of cheesecake that you are a slave to that big old piece of cheesecake you are a slave to that cigarette that you have to have before you go to sleep right you you can't get around that you attach yourself to that thing you become dependent on that thing and it takes over your life in a certain way you become a slave to those things that you attach yourself to And this is exactly what Buddha is saying. People compelled by craving crawl like a snared rabbit. You're you're captured. You're trapped by the things you're attached to. And I think it is interesting how the Buddhist parallels help you see a slightly different angle because it would be easy for a Christian to read this quote, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, and think... This is, this is something about avoiding temptation and living a holy life. But it really says nothing about this idea of attachment. And, and that illuminates the scripture. And I think it's uh, being a slave to sin and being like a snared rabbit. I think that's apt. How about this one? Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to see God? Is that a literal thing? How about the Buddha? What does he say on the matter? 
He says, anyone who withdraws into meditation on compassion can see Brahma with his own eyes. So Brahma is the great god of Hinduism. So that's just like can see God with his own eyes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Anyone who meditates on compassion will see God with his own eyes. So to be pure in heart and to meditate on compassion, these are the parallels here. These are the, these are the areas for, for uh, really contrasting these, these two, these two uh, scriptures. What does Jesus mean when he says, the pure of heart? So we know that Jesus doesn't believe that people are capable of being sinless, right? We're all, we've all fall, fallen short of the glory of God, as they say in Christianity. Um, but Jesus still, Jesus still asks or, or commands um, that we become sinless. So if you remember, one of the things he says is where the Old Testament said that if you commit adultery, uh, that you're guilty of a sin. And Jesus says, I say that if you've even thought about it, that you've committed that same sin, right? He's demanding that we be perfect, even though he acknowledges that it's basically impossible. And then Buddha says, meditate on compassion, right? Having compassion for somebody, being able to put yourself in their shoes, to see the world from their perspective, to understand their condition, to understand others. And that's so close to this idea of shared identity that we talked about earlier. To put yourself in the shoes of someone and to understand their position is to, in a way, in a sense, to become that person. That's what compassion means. So to be pure in heart, could that mean something like this? To understand yourself as identical to others. To see that shared com component, that divine spark within us as something that we identify with, as something that unites us together. And that will allow us to see God. Now, if you believe as I do that all is God, coming to understand that, that all is God, allows you then to see in the way that the Buddha suggests, in this compassionate way, to put yourself in the shoes of others. And when you do that, everything you see is God. Every branch of a tree every flowing river, every sunset, every human being, everything. Is that, is that what they intended? I don't know. But I can tell you that mystics from time immemorial would agree with what I just said. And I think there are many who would agree that both Jesus and the Buddha were mystics. So let's continue. Jesus said, Everyone who believes in me will never die. Everyone who believes in me will never die. And the Buddha said, Those who have faith in me are all headed for heaven or beyond. What does he mean by beyond heaven? So you have to remember, in Buddhism, it's not a heaven and hell scenario. There's a cycle of reincarnation, an eternal cycle of reincarnation. Heaven may be a temporary destination, you may become a spirit or a god or something greater than a human being in Buddhism. But what about what is this beyond? See, this beyond is nirvana. Beyond is, is 
becoming enlightened and removing yourself from this recycling, this recycling process of reincarnation, where your soul continues to have more and more chances to perfect itself until you reach this beyond. Everyone who believes in me will never die, never be reborn in the Buddhist sense. You come outside of that cycle of reincarnation to the, to the true goal of spiritual enlightenment. How about this one? Jesus says, The comforter whom the Father will send in my name will teach you everything and remind you all of all that I've said. Okay, so the context here is Jesus is, knows he's going to, to die. And he tells his disciples, I'm going to die. But God will send another. God will send a comforter. And so the quote, the comforter whom the Father will send in my name will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. So this is something or someone who will come again and reinforce everything that Jesus said and taught. And how about the Buddhist version? Buddha says, There will arise in the world a Buddha, enlightened and blessed, just as I am now. He will teach the Dharma and proclaim the holy life in its fullness and purity. I think this is interesting because you have both Jesus and the Buddha. Now remember, Buddha and Jesus lived 500 years apart from each other and thousands of miles apart from each other. And both say that when I am gone, at some point in the future, another will come just like me and will, and will remind you of what I've taught and will remind you of where you've gone wrong and the things that, that you need to do to reach divinity, holiness, perfection, nirvana. And I think that's interesting for another reason. Because there's something about it that is that crosses religious boundaries. Like there's no telling where in the world, to what tribe will this new holy person be born. We know he's going to teach the same thing Jesus and Buddha taught, but there's no telling whether he's going to be a Jew born in Israel or, you know, uh, a Buddhist born in, in Asia. It could be from any tribe, from any language, from any culture, at, at any time. And the, yet the message will be the same. And so something about this crosses over religious borders. It's like a prophecy that is not specific to any religion that doesn't reinforce the religion of these holy people in any way. I think that's very interesting because religions are always so just like any anything any or anybody they're they're all about self-preservation, you know, religions want to preserve their traditions. They want to continue the church, right? They they want to continue. And these verses are something very contrary to that. It's very contrary to the idea of a sustained, organized religion. How about this one? Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In the Buddhist version, when a bodhisattva descends from heaven, there appears in this world an immeasurable light. Jesus is the light of the world. The Buddha is an immeasurable light. You probably know why I find this interesting. Not only is it, is it 
even the language such an interesting parallel. But you also have this idea of light emerging, and we did a whole episode on this before. I think it was called What's the Deal with Light? Just about light showing up in so, in, in so many religious traditions and having such an important place, this idea of light. And we see it in Christianity and we see it here in Buddhism. Christ is the light of the world. The Buddha is an immeasurable light in the world. A light in the darkness, right? Back to Jesus. I came from God and now I am here. You do not know him, but I know him, and I keep his word. And the Buddha? I know Brahma and the world of Brahma and the way to the world of Brahma. Whew, buddy. Jesus said, I came from God, I know him, and I keep his word. And Buddha said, I know God and the world of God and the way to the world of God. And it makes me wonder when Jesus talks about over and over about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Is the world of Brahma and the kingdom of God, are there parallels here between these two concepts? Buddha knows the world of Brahma. That's the world of God. And Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God. Interesting parallels, right? All right, so let's... Let's jump off of the teachings, the back and forth on the teachings. We'll get into some more tales and talk about more of the stories about Jesus and Buddha. But before you do, what do you think about what Jesus and Buddha taught? Those specific quotes that we just read. What they taught to their disciples, their apostles, their followers. It's absolutely amazing to me that not only do you have parallels in what they're teaching, but so closely related even in the language. It's, it's, I don't know how to explain that. I think it's fascinating. And I'm going to give you in the conclusion what I think that might mean. But before I do, let's, let's talk about the stories of the two men a little bit more. We talked a little bit earlier about their birth stories. So now let's get into a later in life, and we'll talk about some of these stories here. So we're going to start with Jesus. Then the devil led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, To you I will give all this authority if you will worship me. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. All right, so here's Jesus being tempted in the desert. If you remember the story, the devil said, we climb up on this high mountain. You can see all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I will give these to you. You will be king of the whole world if you would just worship me. And Jesus said, no. We're to worship only God and serve only him. All right, let's look at the Buddhist version. Then Mara, the evil one, drew near to him and said, let the Blessed One rule. If the Exalted One were to wish the Himalayas to be gold, the mountains would become a mass of gold. The Exalted One responded, Were the mountains all of shimmering gold, it would still not be enough for one man's wants. Then Mara the Evil One vanished then and there. So here you have the same sort of temptation, right? The devil, in this case the Deva Mara, comes to Buddha and says, you should rule over the world. 
and you have the power. If you wanted, you could turn the Himalayas into gold. And he and the Buddha responds by saying, just like Jesus said, remember, worship the Lord your God and serve only him, which is basically saying, fuck you to the devil. Buddha says the same, right? He says, even if the mountains were turned into gold, it still wouldn't be enough to quench man's desires. Like, that's the nature of man. We're never going to be satisfied, even with all of the gold in the world. So those temptations mean nothing to Buddha. And Mara's like, vanquished, you know? All right, how about this one from Jesus? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and waited on him. Right, so again, Jesus is in the desert. He's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And being able to do so, right, the, the devil eventually uh, leaves. He's given up. He can't conquer, right, the perfect man. And Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So the angels come and they wait on him. And that's important because a man in that condition in the desert is not long for this world. But the angels come and they wait on him. How about the Buddhist version? Buddha said, Suppose I practice entirely cutting off food. Then the deities came to me and said, If you do so, we shall infuse heavenly food into the pores of your skin, and you will live on that. So Buddha didn't actually fast for a long stretch of time. He just suggested that he might and the gods came to him and said, "If you do, we will we will keep you alive by putting heavenly food into your in, through the pores of your skin." Right. So the angels came to wait on Jesus after he fasted forty days and forty nights. The divine energies of the world uh, would not allow Jesus to perish. They sustained him. And the same with Buddha. When Buddha said, "What if I just stop eating?" and the divine power said. We'll, we'll sustain you. We'll, if, if you should do such a thing, we will keep you alive. So you have this exact parallel between Jesus and Buddha. And there's more. How about this? Start, we're starting with Jesus here. He came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. Right? Jesus walking on water. How about in Buddhism? He walks upon the water as if on solid ground. Amazing. Again, to attribute miracles to these men doesn't surprise me. But to suggest that both men walked upon water? I don't know how you explain that level of concordance. Back to Jesus. They brought him many who were possessed with demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and cured all who were sick. And the Buddhist, Kasapa was sick and afflicted. The Buddha spoke to him, and there he rose up from his sickness and abandoned it. So again, you see parallel miracles here. People who were possessed, afflicted, or sick were brought to Jesus and Buddha and were cured. But what's interesting to me is how they were cured. I don't know if you caught it here. In the biblical version, it says, He cast out the spirits with a word. And in the Buddhist, it said, The Buddha spoke to him, and there he rose up from his sickness. So in both cases, Jesus and Buddha cast out demons and cured the sick with the word. 
and this is important, and you pick up on it if you're a Christian, you know that in the in the Gospel of uh, John, it says that in the beginning was the Word, right? That's the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the same thing that was there in the beginning. That's what the book of John says, the Spirit of God that was there in the beginning. So this is the Word, the spoken Word that's used to drive out the demons. And you see that in Christianity where you might expect to see it if you've read the Gospel of John. But you wouldn't expect to see it in Buddhism. And yet, Buddha did the same, casting out spirits with his word. And I'll give you one more here before we get to my conclusion. From the Bible, from the Bible here. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So here's Jesus is calling his apostles and he's sending them out into the world to cast out demons and cure the sick, to perform miracles as he had done. Jesus gives his apostles the power to do as he had done and to be a benefit to those, to those people in the world that needed it. And how about Buddha who said, Walk, monks, throughout the land. For the blessing of the people out of compassion for the world. So just as Jesus sent his disciples two by two out to be a blessing to the people of the world, this is what the, the Buddha asked his, his followers to do. Walk, monks, throughout the land for the blessing of the people. And that brings me to my conclusion. I've been saving one last parallel for the conclusion, so I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to conclude by sharing their final parallel, you know, chronologically speaking. In the Bible, it says this. Then Jesus breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The earth shook and the rocks were split. Okay, so Jesus hanging on the cross breathed his last breath. This is the moment of Jesus' mortal death. And it says, At that moment the curtains of the temple were torn in two. The earth shook and the rocks were split. So you can you can imagine, you know, this theatrical scene where where the ghost leaves Jesus' body and the earth shakes and the thunder quakes. You know, that just it's a very theatrical and, and powerful. You might not know what this means, but the, the curtain of the temple being torn in two but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you because I think it's important. The curtain of the temple is what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It's what separated the presence of God from the rest of the world. So when the curtain is ripped in two, what that does is it parts that. It, it removes this barrier between God, the presence of God, and God's creation. You and I, the people, the world. So when Jesus died, it's this symbol of this barrier being finally removed that separates God from man. And the Buddhist version. At the Lord's final passing, there was a great earthquake, terrible and hair-raising, accompanied by thunder. Whew, buddy. So in both cases, the great holy man dies, the earth quakes and thunder rings out. And you, you see this in both cases, that the death of mortal death of Jesus and of the Buddha. All right, so a 
appropriate or not, I'm reminded of the opening lines of Romeo and Juliet here. If you remember, two houses both alike in dignity, and fair Verona where we lay our scene. So in this case, we could reformulate it, two lives both alike in dignity, right? Jesus and Buddha. From their divine conception, to the desire to reform their own religion, from their teachings and performance of miracles, right down to their mortal deaths, we have uncanny alignment between the Buddha and the Christ. While half a millennia and thousands of miles separated them, far more, it seems, unites them. This will surely cause some to claim that the newer stories borrowed from the older, or that they exchanged both ways across time. There is, however, another explanation worth considering. One that the great Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. And even St. Paul speaks of in Romans. And Paul says, That which may be known of God is manifest in them, and human beings. See, both acknowledge that merely being human provides a a common structure of potential and experience, which unite human beings from all places and in all times. We share the potential for mystical or religious experience, the interpretation of which is similarly constrained by our common biology and psychology. I mean, people are different in small ways, but similar in most It is for this reason, Huxley tells us, that there is a common factor in all theologies. Might this explain the concordances between such disparate faiths as Buddhism and Christianity? And if so, what does this imply? Does this mean that all religions are equal? That they all lead to the same end? Probably not, if you ask me but it does imply that they come from the same source. And that is something. The great Buddhist scholar Edward Kahn's remarked, quote, When we compare the attributes of the Godhead as they are understood by the more mystical traditions of Christian thought with those of Nirvana, we find no difference at all. This is a hell of a statement, and if nothing else, something worth considering very, very deeply. So if all religions emerge from a universal human capacity for religious experience, and both Jesus and Buddha are examples, perhaps we can reread a parallel passage with a different understanding. Remember when the Buddha foretold another Buddha to come after him? He said, there will arise in the world a Buddha, enlightened and blessed, just as I am now. He will teach the Dharma and proclaim the holy life in its fullness. What keeps us from imagining Jesus to be that Buddha? Or any number of enlightened people and prophets who came in between? How about when Jesus promised that after him, A comforter whom the Father will send in my name will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said. 
whom do we suppose that person might have been? Or might still yet be? As long as mankind lives and thinks and feels, there will be Buddhas and Christs proclaiming what is possible and hidden within us. They exist as perpetual examples that it is possible to encounter God and what is reality for them is possible for us. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>